This podcast is for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to From Crime to Crime. 100th episode. We did it. Dude, I, <laughs> I did not think we'd get this far. Yeah, congratulations, bud. Congratulations to you. You're really the reason we have 100 episodes. Your reason the reason we have one episode. So... <laughs> Thank, congratulations to you. Way to go. And we could celebrate by uh, reading our really terrible review that we got on Apple Podcasts. Happy 100th review to us. Actually, I think it was like 102 <laughs> or something. But yeah, no, it's pretty funny. We got a bad review. So I don't even understand why, well, like what they're upset about. I don't understand. They're like mad that we said something about abandoned houses. Yeah, I read it too. And I don't I don't get it. But yeah, they were really unhappy about <laughs> about us. And I'm. they yeah. said we were ignorant about housing or something. And that's completely fine. We probably are. But teach us. I would love to know more about it. Yeah, I wouldn't. Is anybody else's TikTok like overrun with weird Shania Twain TikToks? <laughs> I don't go on the TikTok a whole lot unless you send them to me. So they're pretty pointed directly at me. So, well, it's weird because TikTok algorithm is like usually pretty spot on. Like if I dig a video of a guy catching a lobster in Maine, the next video is like a dude catching crabs in Maryland. Like they're pretty. They put the punch in the tail and they go, hey, this yeah. one's a breeder and this one's not. <laughs> yeah, an egg. Yeah, I love that guy. Yeah, he's an Ega. But like, they're really spot on. But yet, all I see on my For You page is everybody posting about how she's on tour, and they talk about how she's this country legend, and she's charging like $300 a ticket because she's like the elderly version of Taylor Swift. But then... But then the next morning, all I see are the same exact people posting videos about how the show was terrible and weird and awkward and they left halfway through and they're super disappointed because she's their favorite and they wish they never went. I'm like, am I missing something? It's Shania Twain. Did you really think it was going to be good? I love the Shania Twain hate. I, I'm not a fan of Shania Twain at all, but I love that you just went off on a random Shania Twain tangent. So happy with the 100th episode. But like when people buy these tickets, are they for real? Not like, haha, this is going to be a terrible show. Let's go see tonight. They're like, we really think it's going to be good. Well, I think that the best thing about being a woman is their prerogative to have a little fun. And I think that's just what they're looking for. Single-handedly being the person that ruined country music is not fun. That is true. The 90s had so many great country artists and everybody like lumps her in with all of them. No, I, I can 100% agree with you there. She ruined country music. For sure. Yeah. Sorry, my rant's over, but I do blame her. Like, she's the reason that we have to deal with shit like Florida Georgia Line. Full transparency in, like, second or third grade, Shania Twain was the first concert I ever went to at the Hollywood Bowl. Oh, my gosh. No wonder. And those four you pages are really targeted, man. Like, they know that's your first <laughs> concert? That's scary. As well, so I could say firsthand, though, that it is a giant waste of money. Don't waste your money. But that was my mom and my aunt's money. So yeah, my cousin and I a... just ate pixie sticks the whole time because we knew it was garbage. Wow. I, I'm really surprised at this like anti-Shania rant that we've been going on. Like we usually just get right into things, but we are we are fighting Shania left and right today. And listen, guys, don't come after my mom. Besides that one time that she made <laughs> me go to a Shania Twain concert, she's like a really good mom. <laughs> I mean, there was that one time that she made me go to a Brad Paisley show, too. But Yeah, but honestly, Brad Paisley is actually pretty good live, so that's not a problem. So maybe he was just having a bad night the night we went. Maybe. I, I think he's a pretty good guy. Anyway, let's get into this going to be a super long episode now because I just spent four hours bitching about Shania Twain. That's a weird way to start this. <laughs> Sorry. 
Yeah. These people are fast forwarding and they're like, seriously? They're 10 minutes in, still talking about Shania Twain? All right. Well, let's get this concert started. <laughs> this episode. Oh, this is a concert. concert. Let's, let's go, girls. Don't ever say that again. Grant, stop it. Oh, yeah. Now, stop I'm it. the problem. I'm the problem. You don't want to put me in a bad mood right before <sighs> we start. I'm already going to be real uptight about this episode because you're making me do Israel Keys. Dude, I'm not making you. We're getting to do it. Grant has been bothering me since episode one of this podcast to do Israel Keys. This is the most insane person there's ever been. At least one of them. So I find this guy absolutely nuts. I'm not idolizing him at all, but I do think that he and how he went about things is absolutely fascinating. So this case is going to start February 1st, 2012. 2012. I'm going to say Rascal Flats. No. I'm going to say Kelly Clarkson. No. 2012's got to be Gary Allen. Nope. Luke Bryan. Oh, God. Of course it was. Damn it. Also, Shania Twain's fault. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. let's get into this case. Samantha Koenig was 18 years old. She lived with her dad, James, and her boyfriend, Dwayne. It's always uncomfortable. Well, her and her boyfriend live with her dad. Well, I know, but... Yeah, her boyfriend moved in. So they seem to all get along, though. Samantha's really, really close to her dad because he raised her as a single parent most of her childhood. Right. So they're real close. She got a job as a barista at a coffee stand called Common Grounds. And it's one of these, like, drive-up, walk-up coffee stands that are popular in Alaska where they're just, like, in a parking lot. But they're not, like, in bikinis, right? In bikinis? No. Why would they be in bikinis? They're in Alaska. Alaska and it's February. Well, I know, but like in Seattle, they have the exact same thing, but they have the girls in bikinis and then they just kind of blast the heat and stuff. So I just wanted to make sure. Oh, that's stupid. I, I didn't go. I just, I saw them. Yeah, it's dumb. Okay. No, she's not wearing a bikini. She's working at a coffee stand. She's wearing clothing. Hey, man. Just telling you what I know. Yeah, so her dad didn't love the idea that she would work at this coffee stand because a lot of times she worked alone. You know, it's just a tiny little coffee stand. Right. Especially at this one because they were open until 8 p.m. So, and in the wintertime, it's dark all the time. So he didn't think it was real safe for her to be working there. It's probably not. Well, we'll find out it's definitely not. But she talked him into it because she could pretty much talk him into anything. How old was she again? 18. Oh, okay. And she really liked this job and she was good at it. She was pretty and friendly and sweet. All the customers liked her. Her boss liked her. Like all of her coworkers liked her. So on the night of February 1st, she was working the closing shift alone. And her boyfriend had taken her truck so that he didn't have to walk to work since it was like super cold and snowing because it's February in Alaska. Yeah, it sounds miserable. Yeah, so he was going to come pick her up when she got off work at 8 p.m. And then she would like take him back to his work and drop him back off. And she talked to her dad on the phone that night, who was also at work. And she tried to get him to bring her dinner, but he what couldn't get away do? from his. What were they doing that they were working so late? Um, I'm pretty sure the dad and the boyfriend worked at restaurants, at two different restaurants. Oh. From what I could find, they were both cooks. Oh, Okay. Yeah. I was thinking server, so. No, they were both cooks. Too many cooks in the kitchen during dinner time, am I right? Yeah. But everything was fine. They just said, like, I love you. Okay. She was, like, trying to get him to bring her dinner. And he was like, no, I can't leave work to bring you dinner. So they said, I love you. And they'd see each other at home. And they hung up. Her boyfriend arrived at the Common Grounds coffee stand at about 8.15 to pick her up because the coffee stand closed at 8 and he got held up a little bit at work. You know how working at restaurants is. You try to get out of there and something happens. Oh, yeah. You know? 
Oh, yeah. So when he got to the coffee stand, all the lights were out and the door was shut and everything, and Samantha was nowhere to be found. He tried calling her on her cell phone, no answer. He called her dad, and they decided that he should just go back to work because she probably caught a ride from someone else when he was, like, 15 minutes late picking her up. She probably just, like, rode home with a friend or called a friend or something. But when they arrived home and Samantha still wasn't there and still wasn't answering her phone, they were pretty sure something was wrong and they reported her missing yeah it wouldn't be like her to to do this like to not let them know that they right. were gonna she was gonna go home with somebody else like right that doesn't make that's sense. the thing like at least send a text and be like oh my friend stacy picked me up like something. right exactly yeah this doesn't make sense yeah and then a few hours later Dwayne got a text from samantha saying that she was mad at him about something and staying with a friend for a few days to cool off. And they had been bickering about something earlier, so he's like, wow, I didn't realize she was so mad. But at the end of that text, she told him to let her dad know, and he knew this was a red flag immediately. Because she would let her dad know. Yeah. She would never tell him to tell her dad something. Especially if she was mad at him, she would have called her dad and then told her dad to tell him that she wasn't coming home. <laughs> right. Like, so the boyfriend knew right away, he's like, this isn't Sam. She would never have me relay a message to her dad. She would just call her dad. That's just how she is. So later that night... That's interesting, right? They all live together. Yeah. But that to be the red flag, that's an interesting thing. Well, that's how well they knew her. Like, they knew that wasn't how she would have done it. Right. So later that night, her boyfriend heard a car door, so he went out front thinking it might be Samantha coming home, and he saw a masked man rooting around in the front seat of the truck. He ran back inside to grab James, Samantha's dad, and when they came out, the guy was gone. So it could have been very coincidental, but also, like, could it have been very coincidental? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The same night your girlfriend doesn't come home, your truck gets broken into? Like, yeah. I don't know if at the time they thought it was related or if they just thought, wow, what a shitty fucking night this is. Like, <laughs> But the only thing missing out of the truck was Samantha's ID and debit card. Huh. Yeah, kind of weird. Then they hear nothing. No more texts from Samantha. No sign of her coming home. Nothing. So the next morning, the police and Samantha's dad go to the Common Grounds coffee stand and ask them to pull the video surveillance from the night before because they have cameras at her work. At first, they weren't really thinking anything could have happened to her at work because they have a panic button that calls the local police. And it wasn't pressed. So they didn't think they would see anything on the video because they thought whatever maybe happened to her happened after she left work. But they pulled the surveillance video anyway. And what they saw on the tape changed the whole tune of her missing persons case. Yep. Because at first the police weren't taking it super serious because they're like, dude, your girlfriend's mad at you and she didn't come home. Like she sent you a text and she wasn't coming home. Like, you know, even the cops weren't taking it super serious at first. But in the video, everything seems normal for most of her shift. Then the last few minutes before closing at 8 p.m., she was doing her closing duties, cleaning up, prepping for the next day, and a man came to the window in a ski mask. But it's 12 degrees outside, so that's not unusual. Which is kind of crazy. I mean, it's not unusual and it shouldn't be, but it's pretty crazy that, like, yeah, there's everyone comes up in a ski mask. Like, <laughs> yeah. He ordered a large Americano, which should have been the first red flag, but she was polite and friendly and grabbed a cup and started making it. Are you just dissing him on his coffee choice? Yeah, Americanos. Are you kidding me? It's just watered down espresso. That's all. It's espresso and hot water. Dang it. Stupid idiot. Coffee <laughs> choice. I don't know. I don't care. I didn't even realize that I said anything judgmental about his coffee. I just like word vomited that. <laughs> he called me out on it. <laughs> well. Okay, Erica, be nice. He's not Schneider Dwayne. 
Oh, but he's Israel Keys, so. So don't, you don't have to be too nice. Yeah. Samantha was very nice, though, and she grabbed a cup and started making it. And according to the surveillance video, when she turned around to hand it to him, something startled her. She backs up immediately and puts her hands in the air. And we can't see the person at the window, but it seems pretty obvious that he has a gun or some kind of weapon pointed at her. She immediately turns off the lights, and then the video is a lot harder to see. Eventually, after a few minutes interacting through the window, the masked, hooded figure dressed in all black jumps through the window, and he puts Samantha on the ground and zip ties her hands. That's so scary, man. That's just... That's just so terrifying. It is one of the scariest videos you'll ever watch. Yeah. Eventually, he picks her up, and he walks her out of the coffee stand. Like, literally just out the door, closes the door, and out of view of the camera. And that's it. Just those couple of minutes, and then the text that they got later, and nothing since. Just no sign of her. So, of course, her dad and her boyfriend are top of the suspect list at first. But they're ruled out pretty fast, because neither one of them matched the description of this person that was on the video, for one. And they both had alibis for the time that this happened, you know, so they're ruled out pretty quickly. Then they find a video from a nearby business of the perpetrator putting Samantha in his truck. So finally, they have a big lead. Yeah, thank goodness that there are like other places that have more cameras so that they're They can see kind of what's going on. The truck is a white Chevy, somewhere between a 97 and a 2006. So now all they have to do is track down all the white Chevys from those years and figure out who took Samantha. Yeah, that's it. No big deal. Yeah. Sounds simple enough, except that this is Alaska and apparently everybody drives a white Chevy pickup truck. So there are literally thousands of them. I would think in Alaska you would drive something other than a white car of any sort because if you get trapped in it like you're going to blend into the snow the ice. Surprised that there's so many white ones. Yeah but snow and ice and like salt on the roads and stuff is really hard on cars and their paint jobs maybe white holds up longer than like a black car would. Yeah maybe. I could see that. Yeah that could be why. I don't know. None of mine never mind. I would never live in Alaska. I would I'd dig Alaska. I've never been but I think I could dig Alaska. I think I could live there for a little bit not forever i could go to alaska for like four days and then get right back on a cruise ship and come back i think i could live in alaska for a little bit well i don't think that's true but the local alaska authorities call in the fbi right away because they need resources they know they need help this is obviously an abduction at this point i love when police know that they're in over their head and they get the extra help that they need totally They call them in right away because they need cell phone pings and scent detection dogs for searches, like stuff they don't have. So the family and the local community come together and have large-scale searches also. Like the whole community rallies together. They raise a bunch of money for a reward fund or a ransom, whatever happens. It's 12 degrees outside and snowing, and these people are like searching for Samantha. It's a good community. I wouldn't even go out for coffee. If it was 12 degrees and these people are out there like digging in the snow looking for a missing girl like they're tough people. I have an unpopular opinion. I don't think going out for coffee at all is a good idea ever. It's a waste of money. <laughs> what I meant was like I wouldn't go out for something that would help with the cold like warm coffee. Oh, I just don't. I just think it's a waste of time and money. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, they find nothing, though, for three weeks. Like, none of these searches lead anywhere. There's no tips. 
Nothing. Then on February 24th, her boyfriend Dwayne gets another text from Samantha's phone. It just says, Connors Park, under pick of Albert, ain't she purdy. What on earth could that even mean? Well, her dad and her boyfriend rush to Connors Bog Park, which is a park right around Anchorage. And on the bulletin board for the park, there's a flyer for a missing dog named Albert. And underneath that flyer is a plastic bag. And inside the plastic bag, they find a ransom note and a Xerox copy of a Polaroid picture. Okay. So what that notes or what that text message say again? Because now it makes more sense. It said Connors Park under pick of Albert ain't she purdy. Gotcha. Okay. Makes a lot more sense now. Yeah. So in the picture, Samantha's hair is braided. She appears real frightened. And according to people who've seen the picture, there's a newspaper from February 13th being held up by a man's hand or arm. Have you seen the picture? No, they've never released the picture. Oh. There's a picture that's floating around the internet that a lot of people think is the picture, but it's not. It's a recreation from a documentary that was on TV. Oh. It's not the real picture. Then I've seen that picture. I thought it was, and I wasn't going to say anything because I was like, um, I don't know. (laughs) No. That's a fake picture. That's a recreation from a docu-series. Oh, They've never released the real picture. Oh, probably for the best. Yeah, so the newspaper's dated February 13th. So that's 11 days before this ransom note is found. But it's two weeks from when she went missing. So they're like still hoping that she's alive. They're like, well, if she was alive two weeks after she went missing, she's probably still alive. If they waited till today to put in the ransom note. Yeah. So the note is kind of long and rambling, but in a nutshell, it says to put $30,000 in her bank bank account and in six months he'll let her go and he mentions that she almost got away in the parking lot when he abducted her which is true they saw that on the surveillance video that she had gotten away and then he tackled her and he also says that she also almost got away in the desert but there's no in desert, the desert. In Alaska. I was going to say, where is there a desert in Alaska? Well, there's not. Obviously, this ransom note is telling them, like, he took her out of state, put $30,000 in her bank account, and then she'll come back in six months if you do that. Mm. So the FBI and Samantha's dad decide that it's worth the risk. If they're asking for a ransom and she's still alive, pay it. Are ransoms like this that the FBI is involved in, are those government-funded ransoms? No, they don't fund ransoms, I'm pretty sure. Oh, okay. Although I don't know, but in this case, they had raised enough reward money to pay for it, so I don't think they needed to. Oh. But the FBI does tell him to only put 5000 in her account at first, and they're hoping that they would either catch the person when they were trying to withdraw the money, or it would give them a reason for the person to recontact them. Like, hey, why did you not put 30000 in there? And then that would give them another opportunity to try to catch the person. 100%. After they deposit the money in the account, there's a couple withdrawals at local ATMs in Alaska, but by the time they the bank alerts the authorities and they're dispatched to the ATMs, he's gone, obviously, because it only takes a couple seconds to withdraw money from an ATM and they can't get there in a couple seconds. I'm surprised that the bank didn't put some kind of a hold on it. So if they did try, nothing would come out. They'd still get the guy on camera. Yeah, but they want to catch the guy. If they hold her ATM card and don't give him any money, he's going to walk away. And if they don't catch him, they don't catch him. Mm, Yeah. It's over at that point. The FBI realizes that the best chance to catch him is by letting him take the money. So they pull the videotapes and in the ATM footage, he's wearing big bulky clothing that makes him look bigger than he is and a mask. You know, there's nothing they can tell. The the videos are no help. And then there's no activity on her card for over a week. Until March 7th, her ATM card was used again, this time 3,850 miles away. 
in Wilcox, Arizona. Wow, she is out of town. That's the desert. Yeah, that is the desert. Yeah. So when they receive the footage from this ATM, it's also not good. Still a mask. You still can't see shit. Then her ATM card is used the next day in Lordsburg, New Mexico. And then again in Shepherd, Texas. All deserts, baby. They are all deserts. But this time he screwed up. He parked a little too close to the ATM on one of these transactions. And the camera picked up a shot of him driving a 2012 white Ford Focus. Oh, did it get the license plate too? No. But because... Of the Wilcox, Arizona, Lordsburg, New Mexico, Shepherd, Texas, they know he's headed east on the 10. It's a pretty clear route. Yeah. Then on March 10th, it's used in Humble, Texas. So they ask the local authorities in Texas, you know, the Highway Patrol, the Texas Rangers, the Humble Police, everybody, to keep a lookout for this white Ford Focus, 2012 white Ford Focus. And on the morning of March 13th, a trooper noticed a white Ford Focus parked in a hotel parking lot in Lovekin, Texas. He kept an eye on it for a while because there was nobody in it. It was just parked. And when the driver packed up and checked out of his hotel room, he followed him. And a couple miles down the road, the trooper clocked the car at three miles an hour over the speed limit, so he lit him up. (laughs) (laughs) Anything he could to get him. Any reason at all. So when he walked up and asked the driver for their license, the guy told him he was in town for his sister's wedding and handed him an Alaska driver's license that said Israel Keys. So immediately, red flag, this cop was like, oh shit, this might be the guy. Like, he's from Alaska. Gotta be. Yeah, so he asked Keys to step out of the car. He removed a knife that was on Keys's belt. And then he told them they were investigating a kidnapping. And Israel Keys was like, okay, like, what does that have to do with me? And he's like, well, it happened where you're from. And he's like, okay. Like, he was playing it pretty cool, actually. But then more troopers and more rangers and more cops started showing up. And you could tell he was getting real nervous. And they put him in handcuffs and put him in the back of a cop car and they searched the vehicle. And after searching the car, the trooper found some pretty interesting items. There was the usual traveling, you know, laptop, suitcases, like shit you would take with you, clothes, underwear. But there was also clothing that matched the description of the clothing from the ATM videos. U.S. maps with different highways highlighted on them. A whole bunch of cash that was wet and mildewy. Probably because he had just dug it up from being buried, which we'll get to later. But there was also a headlamp, a passport, his passport, quite a few pornographic DVDs. Really? That that is an interesting add-on. I didn't know that. Yeah, such titles include Ultimate T-Girls and Full Service Transsexuals Volume 2. Oh. Yeah. A shovel. That makes sense. Two guns. A Walmart receipt for a shovel and lubricant. Don't usually get bought together. That's an interesting combo. A fishing license from Vermont, which would be important later. Yeah, way other way. They found a cell phone with no battery in it. But the most important thing that they found in this search was Samantha's bank card and her ID. Boom. But they didn't find Samantha. I can understand why he has her her bank card, but why do you think he carried her ID with him? I don't know, but Keys is arrested on the spot. As he should be. Yeah, there was enough in the car to obviously think he's the person who kidnapped her. But they only charge him with the ATM. It's like a weird charge. I don't know. It, it had to do with stealing her ATM card. But obviously they they think he's the person who kidnapped her. But there also was enough evidence in the car to link him to a bank robbery 
in Texas. I don't know. I didn't know that either. Yeah, the money that was found in the car was from a bank robbery in Texas. It had ink on it from a dye pack from a bank robbery. Is that why it was wet? Wet with ink? It was wet because he had buried it. Oh, oh. So when the authorities in Texas questioned him about the whereabouts of Samantha, like, where is she? Like, you have her debit card, where is she? Sometimes he would toy with them and say that he didn't know anything, and then sometimes he would try to make them think that he sold her as a sex slave in Mexico. How would how did he decipher between the two? I don't know. He was kind of a dick about the whole thing. He was not super helpful in Texas at all. But in the meantime, investigators in Alaska search his home. And this is when his live-in girlfriend at the time finds out that he was arrested and what's going on. What a shock. <laughs> like, yeah. hey, knock, knock. We need to search your apartment because... House. They lived in a house. We need to search your house because the guy you live with is a complete creep. And supposedly, they had been together for years, but supposedly they were breaking up. And Keys was in the process of relocating back down to the lower 48. But they were still living together and obviously friendly because we're going to talk about it here, what their plans and traveling was. They still traveled together. And so this was a total shock to her. As I'm sure, well, thankfully it was. I mean, I guess not everybody it should be, but yeah, yeah. it should be a shock to, yeah. to you, but not everybody it is. Right. So after Keyes is finally extradited to Alaska, the interviews about Samantha's abduction and disappearance start with the Alaskan authorities and the FBI. And at first, he doesn't really give up a whole lot. He's like, nah, I'm not going to tell you anything. But they're hoping that Samantha's still alive, and they like, please help us find her. But pretty quickly, within a couple of days, he makes a full confession to Samantha's murder. And by full confession, I mean he tells them what he wants them to know. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. So it, was, it wasn't a full confession. It was a, I'll tell you this much right now. Well, it's... I mean, he tells them that's the whole story, but it, it becomes pretty obvious later on that he's real ashamed of some of the stuff that he does. Is this one of those cases where, like, he can't stop even though he wants to? Like, he genuinely no. does feel remorse for what he's done? No, he doesn't feel any remorse. Yeah, I didn't think so. Nope. He, it's not remorse. It's shame. Like, he doesn't care that people know he's a murderer. He doesn't care that people know he's a rapist. But there's certain things that he's pretty ashamed of. It's really unusual because normally serial killers are just like, blah, spill the beans. Yeah, because it's almost like they're I don't, proud, I guess. Like, they've done something of of note. Yeah. I'm, and for a lot of them, it's the first time that they've done something where people are actually, like, interested in what they've done. Right. And they want to feel like, oh, I got one over on everybody. Like, I'm smarter than everybody in the room. Right. Yeah. You should have been my friend. You should have hung out with me. Look what I'm capable of. Yeah. So he tells them his confession. Like I said, but there's stuff that he won't even talk about. But in his confession, he admits that he went to the Common Grounds coffee shop to rob the place. He said that was his only intention. But once he saw Samantha, he knew that he was going to abduct her. He had prepared his truck by taking the toolboxes and the magnets for his business off. Like, he just showed up and was like, oh, man, I'm going to have to take her now. That's kind of what he says. <laughs> he says that he went there to rob the place and he told himself that he wasn't going to take the person because one of his rules was to not do things like this so close to home. But the way that she reacted to the robbery and how cooperative she was and how scared she was, he said that he knew he had to abduct her. Wow. So after hopping through the window and zip tying her, he put her in his truck and then he drove around for a while because he had to wait for his girlfriend and his 10-year-old daughter to fall asleep. Whew, that's rough. This guy has a daughter too? Yes. 
Like, that's the other hard thing, too, is, like, it's all, he's already doing it. That's already bad enough. But now, like, he has a child. Like, he understands what other people will go through. To, like, that's... Yeah. Even Golden State Killer, like, stopped doing that. Like, once he had kids, yeah. like, he kind of stopped putting an end to it. So... Yeah. So, Samantha talked to him while they drove. He told her that he just wanted money, and if she cooperated, she'd be fine. He even, like, gave her a smoke and, like, talked to him. He stopped at a park so she could go to the bathroom. Like, they literally just drove around for a while. Just chatting? Yeah. Then he asked her for her phone and her debit card. But she had left her debit card in her truck at home. And she had left her truck keys and her cell phone at the coffee stand. So Israel drives back to the coffee stand and gets her phone and her car keys. After abducting her. Like, hours after abducting her, he goes back to the coffee shop and gets her phone and her car keys. That's crazy. He must be, like, have decided just to break all of his rules for this. Like, he must be just kind of over it, right? Like, he kind of wants to get caught. Yeah, we'll get into that in the end, but I think so. Yeah. So he sent her boyfriend the text about being mad and one to her boss saying that she had a bad day and needed a few days to cool off. And once he was pretty sure his kid and his girlfriend were asleep, he took Samantha back to his house and took her into a 10 by 14 shed that he had in the driveway. Not a very big shed. No. And he usually used this shed for like tool storage and like a little workshop, like for his business. So it wasn't like a shed that like his family went into or it was like his workshop. What did he do for work? Was he like a handyman? No, he owned a construction company, Keys Construction. Oh. He was a pretty skilled carpenter, actually. (laughs) Well, that doesn't help things. How does that make you feel? Fine. (laughs) Okay. Well, your husband's pretty skilled carpenter himself, so. He's also traveling right now, which is like... Oh, I mean, I'm not making any comparisons, but... So once he takes Samantha into this little shed workshop thing, he re-zip tied her wrists in front of her. So as he says, she was more comfortable because she was cooperating. So he's like, I'm going to zip tie her hands in the front of her. So, you know, she's more comfortable. It's like, she's not comfortable. Real nice guy. Yeah. He turned a heater on and the music up real loud and locked her in the shed. After he locks her in the shed, he drove to her house and broke into her car to steal her debit card, which is when her boyfriend saw him rummaging through the truck. I can't believe he went to her house. Like, yeah, that stole her ATM card. Audacity is just out of out of control. Yep. Then he went to an ATM to make sure that the pin number that she gave him was the right pin number. <laughs> And it was. Just checking her balance. Yeah, and it was. So he goes back to the house. He put the toolboxes and the other logos, everything back on his truck so that it looked normal. And then he went into the shed and he sexually assaulted and tortured Samantha. And when he was finished, he strangled her and stabbed her in the back. (sighs) He rolled her body into a tarp and put it in a cabinet in the shed, one of his storage cabinets in the shed. Then by this time, it was like early morning. So he went inside his house, took a shower, woke his daughter up, and left for the airport. Woke his daughter up for school? Like part of the routine? No, left for the airport. But like woke, okay, but like woke her up to say goodnight, like goodbye, I'm leaving? No, no, no. Him and his daughter left on a flight out of the airport in Alaska. I didn't realize she was going with. Yeah, they went on a two-week cruise. That left out of New Orleans. 
Oh, wow. Thing is, though, his girlfriend didn't leave for a couple days after they did. She would go on this cruise with them, but she didn't fly that down that morning of the second. She flew down a couple days later. So she had a dinner party that night at their house. And she and the guests at the dinner party had no idea that Samantha's body was in the shed in the driveway. Dude, that is nuts. They all saw that shed, too, as they walked in, I'm sure. Yeah. So he returned from the cruise on February 17th. So over two weeks later. Good thing it's Alaska and like the shed's just like a icebox. So a few days later, he went into the shed and Samantha's body that had been there almost three weeks at this point was frozen. So he thawed her body out with a hairdryer. Oh, man. Oh, my God. Dismantled the cabinet that she had been kept in and burned it because he said it was ruined. It was covered in blood. Yeah, that checks out. Yeah. Then he used a number of ropes and different ties to suspend her in a particular way and proceeded to engage in necrophilia. Ooh, you know things are are not right in the head when people are starting to get into necrophilia. Like, yeah. you can be a furry, you can do some weird <laughs> stuff, but everyone's pretty on agreement that if you start touching dead bodies in a sexy kind of way, even in a even in a mortuary kind of way, people are like, um, yeah, you know, that's a little weird. So yeah, dead bodies is where we collectively draw the line. And this is three weeks after. I mean, this is not oh, recent. Yeah. That's right. That's a good point. Yeah. So after his necrophilia, he decided to cash in on the ransom. He's just spiraling at this point. Like, he's losing it. This is definitely his demise. Like, you can't write a ransom note and take a picture three weeks after you've killed the person. Like, that doesn't work that way. So he got makeup and a Polaroid camera. He braided Samantha's hair and painted her face to try to appear somewhat lifelike, even though she had been deceased for three weeks. And he took Polaroid pictures of... Of her with that copy of the February 13th newspaper and he said he chose February 13th because he was not in town that day so for some reason he thought that would be like a good alibi if he was ever a suspect like well I wasn't even here that day so he took pictures of Samantha with the newspapers and studied what didn't look right added more makeup tried again added more makeup tried again he couldn't get her facial expressions right so he used yeah imagine that so he used a needle and fishing line to sew her eyes to Ugh. make it look as though she was alive dude this is so weird yeah he then xeroxed the picture so that it was even more blurry and black and white and that's what he used as the ransom picture he's not going in the right direction everything he's doing is wrong all of it this is some sick stuff yeah so she had already been dead for weeks when the ransom note was even placed at Connors Park. So over the next few days, he dismembered Samantha's body and took it piece by piece out to Matanuska Lake, which is a lake right outside of Anchorage that's pretty deep and a lot of people ice fish out there. So he built an ice fishing shelter and dropped pieces of her body into the hole to sink them in the lake into the same hole that he was fishing out of. It really is hard to believe that somebody who has a daughter himself is able to do this yeah this is this is why we save this for the 100th episode because this is some gnarly yeah. shit he even came home and cooked the fish he caught for his family while he was disposing of her body he caught fish and he took it home and cooked it for his family oh my god how weird is that? Like, that's like Dahmer. And he missed a parent-teacher conference while he was out there at that lake disposing of her body. Well... He missed his daughter's parent-teacher conference and had to reschedule it. It's like, I don't... Like, how do you even, like, do what you're doing and then check your voicemail and go, oh, shit, I missed that conference, and then, like, run back to town and go meet with your daughter's teacher? Like, he went straight there and met with her teacher. Yeah, I don't have any answers. I'm, I'm pretty blown away. Yeah, it's bad. 
So the investigators go to Matanuska Lake, right where he said his shelter was, and the divers found her remains immediately, like exactly where he said it would be. All chopped up, though, yeah? Yes, he had dismembered her. Yeah. Yep. Did they find, I mean... uh, But everything was right there in the same area because he dropped it all through the same hole. Because when you're ice fit, you have to drill a hole. He actually cut his hole with a chainsaw because he didn't have a ice fishing drill to drill the ice, but he cut a hole with a chainsaw. They, like, were they able to, like, come up with, like... Yeah, they they found her entire remains. Yes. Did they put her back together like a puzzle? Yeah, her autopsy, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So while they're interviewing him about all this shit, they start looking into his childhood and early life because they're like, what the fuck have we come across? Like this, <laughs> yeah, like no you kidding. said, like this doesn't make any sense that this like total family guy, he has custody of his 10 year old daughter. And seemingly a good father, you know, if he's like worried about the parent teacher conferences and stuff. Yep. Everybody says he's a doting dad. He owns a construction business. He's a very skilled carpenter. You know, all of his clients are like, oh, he does great work. He's a super good worker. Like, they're just like, what the hell makes someone do something like this? And his childhood is extremely interesting. But we're just going to give, like, the bullet points. Because once you find out that somebody's, like, crazy murderer like this, it's like, do you really give a fuck where they came from? Like, really? A little bit? Yeah. But we're just going to give the bullet points. We're not going to go into super detail about any of his childhood. That's fair. But, yeah, I do think this is, like, you know. Yeah, you want to know. Well, it's it's that nature versus nurture aspect. And I think that there's there's both. Like, I think you have to... naturally have kind of this going on, but I think it can also be nurtured in certain directions too. Totally. So Israel's parents, Heidi and John, are both fundamentalist Mormons from Los Angeles. That's where they meet and get married. They move to Cove, Utah, where Israel is born in 1978. He's the second child of 10. His siblings all have names like Charity and Sunshine and Autumn and Hosanna. And their parents are apparently like Mormon hippies. Israel, though, I mean, that's not a very hippie name. That's more of a location. Very biblical. Well, it's a biblical name. Yeah. And that's and they're very they're fundamentalist Mormons. I, I kind of like the name Hosanna. That's kind of a nice name. Hosanna. Yeah, it does seem like their daughters have more hippie names and their sons have more biblical names is what it seems like. But that's mm, yeah, it doesn't matter. His parents don't believe in doctors or school or anything normal. So these kids are homeschooled, which means in this case, they aren't schooled at all. That's the best way to go about it. Yeah, totally. When he was a child, somewhere between three and five, they moved to Colville, Washington. It's spelled Colville, Colville, but everybody calls it Colville. So I don't I don't know. Doesn't matter. Give it the California twist. Yeah, it doesn't matter. They moved there, and the reason that they moved there was because they joined a cult called the Ark. His parents did. Yeah, Ark of the Cult. That'd be a good name. They joined a cult, and the cult was called the Ark. <laughs> I know, but Cult of the Ark, I like that. Or Ark of the Cult. Well, they call themselves a church, but it's a cult. It's like a white supremacy, Christian, idealistic, you know, cult. It's a cult. I don't, I don't, it might even be a terrorist organization. I don't know. (laughs) It's not good. So they go from fundamentalist Mormons to like these cult Christians. They live like in rural off-grid properties in rundown cabins with 10 kids and no running water, no electricity, nothing. That's why Israel Keys ends up being such a good carpenter because he like builds cabins for his family to live in growing up. That's a very fundamentalist uh, Mormon skill to have too. Yeah. Or culty. Oh, well, culty too, yeah. Yeah. Fun fact, when they lived in Colville, he was neighbors with Chevy and Shane Kehoe. They murdered people too, right? Yes. 
yes, they were white supremacists that I, that's we're not even we can't even touch on that. That's as much as we're going to touch on that. <laughs> Maybe we'll do an episode on them someday, but I don't want to accidentally get down that rabbit hole. But yes, they're murderers. At least one of them, I think, was convicted of murder. So when he was a teenager, Israel's parents moved to upstate New York from Washington and just became Amish. Yeah, that's normal. Right. Just cut electricity. It's fine. Yeah. Well, they never had it to begin with. Wow. These kids lived in off-grid cabins with no running water, no heat, nothing. They didn't even have social security numbers or birth certificates. They were all born at home. They didn't believe in doctors, nothing. It was wild. This kind of stuff makes sense, and it supports my theory, too, when we can't figure out who somebody is. This is sometimes why. Yeah. So by this point, he was sick of the switching religious cults every couple of years. Like, they went from the fundamentalist Mormons to the Ark, another Amish. He's like, guys... Pick one. So he tells his parents that he's an atheist and he swears off religion altogether, which is doesn't go over very well with his family. And his right. dad disowns him. I was going to ask, but I kind of assumed. Yeah, his dad disowns him. At this point, he's like an, a late teenager, 17, 18. So Israel joins the army. And like I said, when he joined the army, it was kind of a problem because he didn't have a birth certificate or a social or anything because he was born at home. So they had to like figure all that out. And then, but they did let him join the army. And he spent some time in Egypt and he had a decent military record while he was in the army. He never saw like combat. This was before 9-11 or anything. This is like in the late 90s. Do his parents get in trouble for any of this? Like, can you as a no. parent get in trouble for not, I guess, registering your kid? I don't know. I've never heard them mention that in this case. I don't know. Either way, he does his couple of years in the army and he's discharged in July of 2001. While in the army, he met a woman who was half black and half Native American, and they would go on to have a daughter. That's the daughter that was living with him in Alaska when he was caught. And they lived on the Macaw Reservation in Nia Bay, Washington for a while. I'm not saying we should, but do we know any of these people's names now? Or like We do. We do. And we're not going to say any of them. Yeah, I didn't think we, we, know we should, but names, I just yeah. didn't know if it was like knowledge. Like It's public knowledge, right? It is, totally, but there's no point in us saying their names. It doesn't matter what their names are. Yeah, and I agree. I don't think we, we need to share that. Yeah, because they're not involved at all. And I assume do not want us to say their names. This isn't a, a prideful thing. Yeah. So by the time he's out of the army and he meets this woman that he would go on to have a daughter with. He was a, an alcoholic. I mean, he drank too much. And she had some substance abuse issues as well. But from all accounts, they were like doting parents. They both loved their daughter. Eventually, they would break up, and he and his daughter and his new girlfriend would move to Alaska in 2007. Wow. Move to Alaska with his with his kid. That is, that is a choice. That is a bold choice. Yeah, but from where her mom lived in Washington, it's really not far. Like, it's, it's a super short flight. Oh, okay. And we'll see by his travel records later that he would go back to Washington a lot. So I'm pretty sure that she still was with both parents a lot. It's not like he took his daughter and ran off to Alaska. Oh, I, I get what you're saying. Is there a, is there a, uh, like a file somewhere with my travel records in them? Like people. No, but if you turn out to be the next Israel Keys, then they'll create a file with a timeline with your travel record. Like oh, they'll go then, back they, and... then they'll go and like see where I've been. Right. They'll uh, search all the plane records, all the airline manifests, all that kind of stuff, and they'll figure out where you've been. Yeah. Gotcha. But they don't do that unless you do something like this guy did. Well, that's a good... I don't intend to. I just was curious if yeah. it's just like, uh, everyone's no. got a file. So that's the gist of his life up to this point. Meanwhile, in these interviews, he's dropping hints that this is not his first kill. 
when they're interviewing him about Samantha's murder, he's saying stuff that makes him think like he's done this a lot. Which is kind of interesting because most serial killers would be like kind of happy to t- tell you know what they've done at this point. I mean, they're already caught. Yeah, and he does. He tells everything about Samantha's murder, but he just drops hints about the rest of his life. And he drops hints like this. There is no one who knows me or who has ever known me who knows anything about me, really. Mm-hmm. They know they're going to tell you something that does not line up with anything I tell you because... I'm two different people, basically. And the only person who knows about what I'm telling you, the kind of things I'm telling you, is me. How long have you been two different people? <laughs> long time. 14 years. So, I mean, he's basically telling him, like, hey, I'm, this isn't the first time, and I'm actually really good at this. I've been doing this for an extended period of 14 time. 14 years. Yeah. Yeah. He literally says 14 years. Just longer than his daughter's been alive. I think that's the most interesting thing is he like had a kid and it didn't stop him at all. Yeah. So he just toys with the FBI nonstop. He says he broke his own rules with this one and that's why he got caught. And they're like, what the fuck rules are you talking about? Like, what do you mean? And boy, does he got a bunch. He just rules that he set for himself over time to not get caught for these crimes. Like, don't do this so close to home, pay in cash, nothing traceable. So Dexter. Yeah, but he has all the power. And they want him to feel like he's in control in these interviews. Because he is. He's in control of all the info that he gives them. And he uses that to his advantage to get cigars and Americanos and peanut butter Snickers bars. And gives them, like, a little tiny bit of information. Or he tells them something. And then he wants something in return. But he also doesn't want want publicity which is real unusual like you said once they're caught they usually want to talk they usually want to say everything but he's like weirdly concerned about how how all of this is going to affect his daughter see and that's what i'm saying like now he's concerned about his daughter's well-being and stuff but while he's doing these things he's not so concerned about her but he literally says like when she's older i don't want her to google my name and see all this stuff and it's like yeah it's too late dude like it's too late. <laughs> you did all this stuff. But anyway, he agrees to tell them things if they agree to keep the press to a minimum. Like he does not want this all over the news that there's like some new serial killer confessing to all these crimes. He also wants the death penalty. Yeah, I, I can believe that. He just want. I mean, without wanting the publicity, he just wants to get out. Okay, yeah. you caught me. Get me in. Get me out. But like, as we know, the death yes. penalty takes a long time too. Yes, and he wants it within a year. He's like, I want a date within a year. And they're like, Well, that's not possible because that's not the way it works. And also, Alaska doesn't have the death penalty. Oh. <laughs> Well, that makes it doubly hard. Yeah, they're like, dude, you're shit out of luck unless you give us more from a state that either has the death penalty or we can charge you federally. Like, you got to give us more. And I don't know why they didn't just lie to him and give him some arbitrary date for his death penalty, get him to confess to everything, and then be like, oh, never mind. We were lying about that. Give him a sedative instead of the the other kind of drug, and he wakes back up just in his cell. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what I mean? They lie to people all the time in interrogations. Like, I don't know why they didn't just lie to him. Yeah, but that's a good anyway, point. He spends a lot of time in these interviews talking about hypothetical murders and how he does things and his meticulous planning and how, you know, just like his very organized way that he kills people, but in very vague terms. Like, he never gives a lot of details, like, where they'd be able to hone in on a specific victim. He might give, like, the general area, but he won't tell them the year 
year, you know, or he'll tell them the year, but he won't tell them where. He thinks he's smarter than them. You know, it makes sense. Like, he doesn't yeah. think that he's actually, like, not, not getting caught. He knows that, but, like, he's trying to get as much out of it as he can. Yeah. And, like he said, he wanted the death penalty, so he does agree to give them two more victims to prove that he's a serial killer so that they can charge him federally. Why only two was he willing to admit to? Well, he said eventually he would admit to everything, but he didn't want to just give them everything and then them let him rot in a cell for the rest of his life. Like, he wanted assurances from them that they would give him the death penalty. Oh, I see. So he didn't want to give them everything that they needed, like, right up front. So he agrees to give them two more names in exchange for, like, their discretion, pretty much. Like, he does not want to hear about this particular case on the news because he hadn't been tied to this case yet. But he thinks that giving them this will speed up the death penalty stuff. So he tells them that they're going to need a map, and they're like, okay, of Alaska or Washington, what? And he's like, oh, no, Vermont. That's not even close. So he admits to the kidnapping and murder of Bill and Lorraine Courier, who have been missing from their own own home in Essex, Vermont since June 8th of 2011. So almost a year at this point by the time he's confessing. And he had that fishing license in his wallet when he was arrested from Vermont. So they knew he had been in Vermont at some point. I wonder why he kept that old fishing license because they're usually only good for like a week or two, maybe a day even. You know, like I wonder I know, what maybe as a souvenir. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. But like, other than it saying Vermont on there, I guess there's really no other tie to him. But maybe that's why. Yeah, or maybe it was just one of those things. Like, you know, he bought it for while he was fishing up there, and then well, he wasn't fishing, but we'll tell you what he was doing, and then shoved it in his wallet, and then just like never took it out. You know, yeah. maybe it was like behind his driver's license or something. He just never took it out. Yeah, I could I see know. that. Yeah. So at this point, they do have all of his travel records, which are extensive. The timeline that the FBI put together on their website includes hundreds of flights, rental cars, hotels. Some of them don't even make sense. Like flying from Alaska into a city, renting a car for like three or four days, returning it with thousands of miles, and then flying out of another city with like no rhyme or reason. It's a total mess. His travel logs are insane. All by design. Yep. So he goes on to explain that he travels a lot. He flies somewhere, rents a car, drives far away, scopes out parks, hiking trails, cemeteries, small towns, and he comes up with a plan to rob a bank, commit an arson, or murder somebody. And then he buries these kits or caches with the stolen bank money, guns, ropes, zip ties, Drano, knives, even disguises, like anything he might need for a murder, a bank robbery, or an arson. And then he leaves. Sometimes not going back to that location for years. But when he does, he already has a cache full of everything he'll need to commit a crime. Either a murder or a bank robbery or an arson. And that's, and he's already decided what he wants to do previously, right? Like he doesn't show up and go, right. well, I decided now I'm going to do arson instead of a murder. No, everything's meticulously planned. And he packs all this stuff in these Home Depot buckets because they're waterproof. And he buries them. So once he's committed the crime and gets rid of all of the evidence that can be traced to him by either burning it or dropping it in lakes or rivers, he reloads these kits and buries them somewhere else. So there could be kit kits still throughout the country. Oh, yeah. They, there definitely is. Yeah. Wow. Yep. Has anybody found one? No. Really? So, well, the FBI found two that he led them to, but they've nobody's ever found one, like, by whoops. 
No. Wow. So according to his travel records, he was in Colchester, Vermont in 2009. And then he was in Vermont again in June of 11 when he killed Bill and Lorraine Courier. But these aren't just like fly to Vermont, do something bad, and fly home trips. That's not how Keyes travels. See, like go for vacation and like this is part of the vacation? No. He gives them the details of his travels for the dates that he killed Bill and Lorraine Courier. He flew from Alaska to Chicago, rented a car, drove over 900 miles to Vermont, dug up that kit that he had buried there over two years before, abducted and killed the Couriers, drove all the way up to Maine for the weekend, then over 900 miles back to Chicago, disposing of evidence along the way, and then flew to San Francisco, and then flew back to Alaska from San Francisco the next day. God, he's just everywhere. That's how, yeah, like that's how confusing and ridiculous his travels are. So when they ask him about why he chose the couriers, like why did he target them, Mm -hmm. his answer like shocks them. Because most serial killers have like specific victims types, but Keyes did not. He didn't choose the couriers. He chose the location and the house because it fit a certain criteria and the couriers happened to live there. Yeah, it had nothing to do with them. No. His plan was meticulously laid out years before he even chose their house. So they could have been living there and had they moved, fine it would have been the next the next person person or people wow yeah he chose Essex in 2009. He said he had kidnapped and murdered an unknown victim on the East Coast during that trip in April of 2009. He wouldn't say who at the time, but they think they know now. Anyway, after that murder, he robbed a bank in Tupper Lake, New York, which they confirmed was him. And then he reburied this kill kid or cash in Vermont after scoping it out for like a couple days. He was like, okay, Essex is the perfect place for my next thing. So he buried the kill kit and then he left. He went on tons of more travels in between and then over two years later he came back to Essex, Vermont and did that whole like fly to Chicago, rent a car, drive 900 miles. Just all to keep his his tracks covered and I mean and while doing so like spending a ton of money too. No wonder he had to rob banks to do this. Oh yeah, definitely. He definitely had to rob banks. There's no and one of his rules was like to pay for everything in cash so there was no trace. Right. So Once he got to Vermont, he started scoping out neighborhoods, walking distance from where he had parked his car. He was looking for a house that was a single story with an attached garage, no kids, which is another rule that he came up with after he had a kid. He said he wasn't going to fuck with kids anymore. Oh. Which, okay. Investigators cannot prove that he ever did fuck with kids, so that kind of freaks him out, too, because they're like, oh, shit, did you used to fuck with kids? Like, what do you mean? Maybe it was just on the list and he stopped. Yeah, so that was another rule he came up with was no kids, no dogs, because they complicate things, and the people had to have a car. The person had to have a car. Wow. Does he talk about how he got all these rules in place and like why? Just common sense stuff that he figured like kids because he had a kid, dogs because they complicated things because they would bark and alert the owners and the attached garage because he knew he was going to kidnap them in their own car. So he wanted to be able to get them in the car without neighbors seeing. Yeah. Like he was just a planner. An over-planner, actually. He never even saw 49-year-old Bill or 55-year-old Lorraine until after he broke into their home. But it didn't matter 
mattered to him. He didn't care if his victims were young, old, male, female, if there was two or six of them or one. It didn't matter. The situation was what mattered to him. It's interesting to me that only kids is his concern. Like, he doesn't really care how many people are there. Like, people complicate things, too. Yeah. Probably more than dogs. Yeah, but in this case, he abducted a couple. I mean, he didn't care if it was more than one person, if it was one person. It was all about the situation as a whole had to be all the right things. So he scoped out this neighborhood for hours, and he hung out in the backyard of the courier's house for hours. He was waiting for the couriers and their neighbors to go to bed. The guy next door kept pissing him off because he would would like take his golden retriever out to go to the bathroom and the guy was a smoker so he would come outside to have a cigarette and his dog would come outside with him and he said it was after midnight before that guy finally went to bed which like kind of irritated him because he wanted to get an earlier start good thing he had a dog otherwise he would have gone to his house yep so while he waited for that guy to go to bed and like the whole neighborhood to kind of like shut down for the night he cut the phone lines at the courier's house. Most people were like, oh, he probably did that so they couldn't call 911 when he broke in. But he said he liked to do this because generally if they had an alarm, that would set the alarm up. Oh, wow. So he cut the phone lines and waited to see if the cops would show up. Because if they had an alarm system, the cops would show up. Our alarms hooked up to like Wi-Fi now? Like we don't have phone lines like we used to. Or do we? I don't know. Yeah. No, I'm pretty sure alarms are all Wi-Fi now. But like back then they were phone lines. This is 2011. Yeah. So when nothing happened and the neighbor went to bed, he crawled through the window in the garage. And there was a door from the garage to the kitchen. And the screen door was locked. But he easily picked that lock with his knife because it was just a screen door. But then the door itself between the garage and the house was dead bolted. And he even made a comment in his interviews like their house was locked up tight. There was no way to just like sneak in quietly like it was locked up tight. And was that a thrill for him? Did he like that? Or was that did that piss him off? Or? I don't know. Mm. No, it didn't seem to piss him off. But he knew he couldn't pick that lock. But there was a window in that door. So he just shattered the window. Wow. And he said that once he shattered the window, he knew that would wake them up. So he said he booked it and it took him maybe five or six seconds to run down the hall and into their bedroom. He said they were still like confused and stunned about what the noise was when he came into their bedroom. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. So he quickly took control of them, zip tied them and told them to cooperate. They assumed they were being robbed, obviously. He checked the house to make sure that there was nobody else there in any of the other rooms. And then he asked them for jewelry cash, guns, medication. They did have medication and jewelry and a gun, and they gave it all to him because they thought that he was robbing them. He then went into one of their rooms and took their suitcases and packed all this stuff up in the suitcases with Lorraine's lingerie that he found in a dresser drawer. Why would he take that too? Like, was he trying to make it seem like he was going to like... Well, he took that because he's going to rape her. Oh, that was why. Yeah, of course. Then he told them to throw on their slippers or their flip-flops, and he walked them over the broken glass from the garage door and into their own car. He put Bill in the back seat of the car and Lorraine in the front seat and zip-tied their hands to, like, the seatbelt buckle and everything. And he headed to an abandoned farmhouse on the outskirts of town that he had actually already picked out well in advance. He knew this place was abandoned. He knew it was for sale. Yeah, I he believe knew there it. would be nobody there. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I'm sure he did. He told Bill and Lorraine that he was taking them for ransom and that they were meeting other people there, which none of that was true. Bill tried talking to him during the car ride and, like, humanizing himself, and it turned out they had been in the same army division or infantry or whatever it's called. Not at the same time, but they were part of the same unit. 
And that wasn't enough for him to be like, oh, okay, cool. No. Brothers. Bill's strategy here was super duper smart, but it didn't work on Keyes. He had perfected that years before. He told investigators about his first victim, that he had took her from the Deschutes River in Oregon in the 90s when he was like a teenager. And he says she talked the whole time. That he was like sexually assaulting her and saying stuff that he was cute and he didn't have to do this because she would have slept with him anyway. Like she was talking to him the whole time. And he says that she was young, like 12 to 18. And she promised him that she would never tell anybody. So he let her go. But he says that he regretted that a lot. God. And he promised him that was another one of his stupid rules he made up was that he would never, ever let anybody else go. Like it bothered him that much that he had a weakness that people could like humanize themselves to him. So by the time he's talking to Bill in the car, that doesn't work on Israel anymore. So like he's put up a defense to it or he shuts it down. Sounds like he just puts up a defense to it, but just like, I don't care. Yeah, no, he engaged in the conversation, but it didn't bother him. He was still going to kill Bill. Wow. Yeah. That might have been the, the only redeeming thing about him and he shut it off. Yeah. So when they get to the farmhouse, he takes Bill into the basement and secures him to like a stool and he goes back outside to get Lorraine, but she broke her zip ties and escaped the car and she was like almost to the road when he tackled her. Like this farm house is kind of set back from the road a little bit and she was almost to the road when he tackled her and he says quote he roughed her up a bit unquote i'm sure we don't know what that means yeah but then he took her inside to an upstairs bedroom and he tied her up with ropes and by this time he hears bill and realizes that he's gotten free too somehow i want to play you the audio of the interview of what he says happened next but I just want to warn you, like, it's pretty rough. All right. Let me have it. I'm not going to say what I was going to do, but, you know, there was, like, a plan I had to, that he was going to be involved, too. And uh, But once he wasn't tied up anymore, I just felt like it was kind of a waste of time. And so I went back upstairs. I, I like, ran back upstairs. By then I was all amped up and grabbed my, uh, grabbed the 1022 out of the backpack I didn't want to shoot him with a 40 cal because there was a car, there was a cop car right across the road. I don't know if it was the sheriff's house or if his car was just there. Parked in the driveway or something? Yeah, it was like only, there was a house probably only 100 yards away. The 40 cal was loud and I was paranoid about using it. So I uh, I ran back upstairs and grabbed the 1022 and I had a, Usually when I was carrying those, I, I mean, I always had, like, the 50-round drum with me or, you know, all the other magazines, but when I was carrying it, I would just carry it with the 10-round magazine because it would fit up under my jacket better, and uh, so I grabbed that, and I grabbed the silencer and put that on, and I was only, I was upstairs for maybe, not for long, like, 20 or 30 seconds, and she was still on the bed. She couldn't move anywhere at that time, but she could tell that things were not going well. I think I was cursing and stuff. And so, like, he kept yelling up at the, after the, up after me up the stairs. He was like, where's my wife? What's going on? And, and I was like, I, I told you, you're not going to cooperate. You can do it the hard way. And uh, and uh, came back downstairs, and he was standing at the bottom of the stairs in the basement still. It was like, he, he didn't have any light, but I could tell when I came down the stairs, like, he was... Uh, he was trying to figure out like, some way to fight me. He was like feeling around for something to hit me with, and I came back down the stairs and I saw that. I said, "Oh, you're still not going to cooperate." And I, uh, 
had the gun out in front of me, like pointed from the hip, and uh, had my headlamp on. He saw the gun, and he started to say something, and it just pissed me off, and I just started pulling the trigger. And uh, he threw his arms up, kind of crossed them in front of him, it seems like. And I actually saw, like in my headlamp, I actually saw the bullets hitting him. But it wasn't loud. It was, you couldn't even really, I mean, if someone heard that gun, even if they were in the next room, they probably wouldn't even know it was a gun. It was that quiet. How many times was I just kept pulling the trigger. I pulled as fast as I could until the magazine was empty. So 10? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he didn't, he, he, he was still standing when the last shot hit him. Where did the shots hit him? Mostly. Seems like two of them might have hit him in the forehead, and, or not forehead, but in the forearms. So like his arms were crossed in front of him, and then seems like at least one or two rounds, like the last rounds that hit him, uh, he was starting to fall. It seems like they might have hit him in the neck or in the head, but for the most part, I think it was like the chest area, torso. I was surprised, like how fast he went down, because <laughs> I wasn't. I mean, it's just a 22, but. Um, I think he was in shock, because like, I think he went into shock, because I don't think he was dead. But he, um, yeah, he hit the ground, and I knew he wasn't getting back up again. But I was mostly, I was pissed off after I had to shoot him, because I knew, <laughs> I was really proud of that gun. I was like, now I have to throw the barrel away, so I was pissed off about that. But anyway, um, but I, I, I waited long enough to make sure that he wasn't going to get back up or go anywhere, and then I went back upstairs. And, and took the gun apart, and I don't think she knew that, um, or I didn't take it apart, I just took the silencer off, but, uh, and put it back in my backpack. I don't think she knew that I had shot him, but, um, she knew that something had happened. <sighs> That's pretty rough. This guy, Bill, his will to live was enormous, and he was trying everything, his wife was trying everything to get out and get out alive and stuff, and honestly, Israel was just too meticulous he had planned things out too far in advance yep he kind of expected too much you know too much firepower yeah it's 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 the interviews are interesting because he's so nonchalant and he like giggles and acts like real lighthearted which i know i understand we do that a lot too on this podcast when we're talking about heavy stuff to try to like make it through it but we didn't do it <laughs> you know like right that's the a thing. lot better when you're not the one who's Literally pulling the trigger. Yeah, it's rough. So at this point, after he kills Bill, he goes back upstairs and he sexually assaults and tortures Lorraine for a long time. And then do we know, did he keep her alive or did he like kill her and then do it? No, he kept her alive. And then when he's finished, he takes Lorraine to the basement and asphyxiates her. Oof. And when he's done he wants to make sure that she's dead so he wraps a large zip tie around her neck and pulled it as tight as he could and left it on her neck and like walked away or yes wow that feels like the rage that he had in him of like her trying to get away like that was him taking it out on her that way yeah he also seems very upset that they ruined whatever his, like, crazy meticulous plan was. Like, he says that he had plans for both of them, and Bill ruined it by fighting and not cooperating. Like, he even tells the investigators, like, I'm not going to tell you what my plan was, because obviously he's, like, ashamed of that. But he's like, it involved him. Oh. So after killing both Bill and Lorraine, he says that he notices that the sun is starting to come up. 
when he goes out to the car to get Drano and trash bags, he notices that there's like cars on the rural road and the sun's starting to come up. And that puts a halt to his other plan because he was going to torch this house with their bodies in it. But now there's too many potential witnesses. So he puts their bodies in the trash bags, pours Drano on them, and then he puts them in the corner of the basement and he piles wood and other trash and debris on top of them. Does Drano like liquefy them? He said that he thought Drano would fuck up DNA. Like if their bodies were found right away and he happened to have left any DNA on them, that the Drano would like totally ruin any DNA evidence. Oh. But he said that he also noticed one time that he burned himself with Dr- like he splashed Drano on his hand and he left it on there too long and it actually burned his skin. So he thought if he covered the bodies in Drano, that was like one of his like things. Was he thought it would help the decomp happen faster. Like it would burn the flesh and speed up the decomp. Yeah, my that's disgusting though. Like what a this guy is so sick, man. Like Yeah, totally. So he takes their car and he ditches all the evidence and the murder weapons and even their gun. He rebuilds his kill kit. And then he said he planned on taking their car and using it at a bank robbery, which is like his normal, I guess. He kidnaps somebody, kills them, takes their car, uses it in a bank robbery or an arson or something. But he said that on this trip, he did not rob a bank because their car wasn't in very good shape. So he was afraid that it wouldn't be like reliable enough to get him to the bank and out. <laughs> And he said that he was pretty shaky and kind of amped up from being up all night and not sleeping. So he didn't trust himself to rob a bank that day. Wow. How self-aware. Yeah. So he ditches their car back in Essex and goes to Maine for the weekend to visit his brother. Then he drives like over a thousand miles back to Chicago to fly to San Francisco and then San Francisco to fly to Alaska. Doing every can to get caught still. So after this confession, they contact Vermont. And when they go to the farmhouse to recover the courier's bodies, it had been demolished six months before. The house had been demolished? Yes. Wow. With them inside. Just all yes. swept up together. That's crazy. And when they contact the inspector, whose job it was to go through the house before demolition, they call this inspector guy to find out, like, did you inspect the house? Because that's his job. And they were, and if you did, like, was there bodies in the basement? And if there was, what did you do with them? And he's like, <laughs> oh, I didn't go in the basement. And they're like, what? You're the inspector. He's like, oh, no, the basement smelled so bad I couldn't even go down there. So I didn't, I didn't go down there. <laughs> um... You might have wanted to inspect that. Yeah. To find right? out why. That's what I was like, you're an inspector. That doesn't make any sense. So now the FBI and the Vermont authorities have to spend 12 weeks searching the landfill for Bill and Lorraine Courier's remains, and they never recover them. Oh, wow. Yep. That Drano might have worked better than he thought. Yeah, could have. We'll never know. So these interviews go on for months. He's caught for Samantha's murder in March. By May, he's given them the couriers, abduction and murder. But between May and October, he's given them like nothing. He just taunts and teases them. He tells them about murders and like the way he does stuff, but doesn't give them any like names or proof or dates. He just taunts them. He tells them though that he was losing control. It was getting harder and harder to separate, like, his personal life with his girlfriend and his daughter from his serial killer life. What did he tell them that he was traveling for? For work and stuff? Yeah, he was a traveling contractor. Yeah, but I mean, (laughs) how good are you that you're going down to the all around the U.S.? Even, you know, with them not knowing he's going all around the U.S., but still, like, 
Well, that's the thing. I don't think they knew where he was going. But still, to leave to go to, like, even California or Seattle or, you know, anything else, it's a lot. When you're not, like, right well, there. Why, why would they think any different? He came home with money, so obviously he was working, yeah, you know? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess that's right. They didn't know it was from robbing a bank. But he tells the police, like, that's part of the reason why him and his girlfriend were breaking up. He couldn't keep up both lives anymore. He didn't have the self-control. He was breaking his own rules. You know, he'd plan these elaborate trips to go murder people and create, commit all these crimes, and he couldn't even wait until his trips. Like, remember after he killed Samantha, the morning after he killed Samantha, he went on one of these trips. But he couldn't wait. Was he just getting, like, too excited? Like, he had to do it? Yeah. And wow. he even said after Samantha's murder, he didn't get any, like, satisfaction. He felt like he had to do it again immediately. Like, his cool-down period was getting shorter and shorter. He wow. was losing control. That's crazy. Which, like you said, was he, did he want to get caught or could he, like, not help getting caught anymore? Kind of sounds like the thrill of it. He was losing that. Like, he was doing these things and yeah. not getting caught and the thrill of Oh, him... yeah. That's another thing is he was definitely cocky. He thought he could get away with it. He thought he was way better than anybody. I mean, is he wrong? No. I mean, not so far. So they're doing these interviews for months and months, but he's not giving them any names or dates. And, I mean, they've invested thousands of man hours into interviewing him and dollars in Americanos and cigars and peanut butter Snickers. So around October, they have a pretty frank interview with him that they want the name of the New York victim that he's talked about. And he gets pretty shitty with them. And he's like, well, I want an execution date, so we're at a fucking standstill. And they tell them he's got to give them more names and more dates or they're not going to give him an execution. And he's like, well, then no. You know, like it was kind of a shitty interview when normally they're like really jovial and joking with him and laughing. And But then they play hardball and they pull out a picture of a lady named Deborah Feldman. And they ask if she is his April 2009 New York victim. And for the first time in seven months of interviewing Israel Keys, he's rattled. He didn't think that they could... Pin him to that. He, he, they had never been a step ahead of him. They always made him feel like he was in control and that he was the only one who knew every, you know what I mean? And he doesn't admit to Deborah Feldman's murder, but it's, he's clearly angry that they've gotten one up on him. Yeah. Like he's not leading the interview now. And he's like, I'm not ready to talk about that. And so they, they keep asking, they're like, well, is she, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you that. I'm not going to tell you that. And they're, and so then they ask him, they're like, well, why was her name searched on your computer? <laughs> oh man. And he's pissed. He won't talk. Like this is the first time he realized that they have like his entire search history, which turns out there'd be like 44 names of people that are on NamUs that he searched. Was he searching NamUs? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he's kind of, that interview doesn't go so well. But surprisingly, the next interviews actually seem to make more progress. He talks about the caches and maybe giving them some of the locations of the caches. Like he's not going to give them the victims' names or murders, but he might give them locations of the caches. And he even tells them, like, that he's debating on whether or not he should go, like, max publicity or min publicity on this. Like, he's been trying to keep his name out of the press and stuff. And now he's like, is that even reasonable? Should I just, like, tell you everything and go max publicity? And what do they say to him? They try to talk him into going max publicity. Oh, do they? <laughs> For sure. 
Yeah, because they want to know all the victims. You know, they want to close cases. They want to make their career. Right. So, which is a whole nother thing about the jurisdiction issues in this case between like state, locals, and feds. And like, we know less than we should know about what happened to Israel Keys because of the pissing match between all the departments here. But like, the FBI doesn't let anybody interview him except them, and they're not very good at it. Which is surprising because sometimes they're really good at it and then sometimes they're really not. Yeah. And these ones, it's like, I can't tell. Maybe they are really good and he was just better. I don't know. It's it's really weird, but it does seem... Or maybe they wanted him to think he was running the show the whole time. Like, I don't know. There was just little things like when he's talking about other serial killers, they're like, well, who's your favorite? They're like, because we have a bet on who you think your favorite is. And then when he says H.H. H. Holmes, they don't even know who H.H. H. Holmes is. <laughs> That's embarrassing. I, that's kind of what I was like, are you serious? But then I thought about it. And it's like, well, maybe they're pretending to not know who he is so that they can make Israel think he's smarter than they are. Like, that could be a tactic. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's really weird. So he debates back and forth on this publicity thing, Max or Min. They try to get him to to go max or whatever and he says he needs to think about it he's like i gotta think about whether or not i want to do that and he said he goes you know if it was just me i would just tell you everything and get it all out on the table but he keeps telling them like he's like it's my daughter i don't want her to be embarrassed by me i mean that is wild in and of itself too because like we are so far past that right one man just one and she's going to be embarrassed yeah. So he does admit that as entertaining as these interviews are, like he's losing interest and you can tell. And he tells them, especially if you don't give me an execution date, I'm not going to live in prison forever. I can't do this. I'm a wanderer. I need to be out in the open. If this is the rest of my life, I'm done with it. And and you can tell his tone is like totally different than in the beginning interviews. Yeah. And he's serious. I mean, he, yeah. he wants to either in or like he wants them all in or he wants out. So then his name is released by the Vermont authorities in relation to the career murders, and he's pissed because that was one of their deals was that they would right. not release his name or any of his stuff. Until... He's like, once I'm gone, I don't care. He's like, but while I'm still here, like, I don't want any of that shit all over the news. And he wasn't ashamed for himself. He was ashamed for his family and his daughter. It's, it's kind of interesting. It's the most human thing about him, honestly. It is. So he tried to say he wasn't going to give them any more shit, but he hadn't really given them shit anyway. He hadn't given them anything since Samantha and the Couriers, like back in May. You know, and we're like October, November at this point. But by the end of November, it did seem like he was coming around a little bit, like that he realized he needed to give them something, mostly because rumors were swirling and he said that he was worried about his kid who lived in Washington with her mom. Yeah. He was worried that all the rumors were of things he didn't do. And they're like, well, you need to tell us what you did do so that these rumors won't be out there. Like, if you tell us what the truth is, then there wouldn't be rumors. But obviously, the truth was worse than people were making up because he still wouldn't tell them. Yeah, no kidding. So they resorted to bribery towards the end of November. They literally asked him, like, if they brought him sushi or let him use the internet for an hour, would he give them a hint? Like, they weren't even asking for, like, a victim's name or anything. They're like, just give us a hint. Give us a clue that we can trace. Give us one of these caches. And was he willing? Eventually, he was giving them little things, but it wasn't names or dates. He would say stuff like Bill Courier was the only person he ever shot. Every other victim was strangled. But 
we know that he also stabbed Samantha. So who knows if that's even like true what he's saying. But yeah, but he did agree to show them where the caches were if he could use Google Maps and fly the drone. So it would like feel like he was out of the prison, which I don't know why they didn't just say, let's take you on a field trip. Go show us where these are. I don't know why they didn't do that, but they didn't. But they do agree to let him fly this drone so that he could show them where the caches are. And he said he needed time to think about which ones he was going to show them because they all have evidence from different crimes in them. So he wanted to be strategic about which ones he gave them and which ones he didn't. And that was at the end of November. Then on December 2nd, Israel Keyes killed his final victim. That we know about. No, he killed his final victim. He used a a disposable razor to cut his own arms and he drew 11 skulls in his blood. (laughs) And then a 12th that had like a goat in it or some shit. He left a rambling suicide note that's written in like poem form. So I'm not going to read it because it's fucking stupid. (laughs) It's so, and it's like repetitive. So it almost is like, is this a song? He also tied a bed sheet around his neck to like make sure that he, you know, like semi hung himself. So he even like overkilled himself. Wow. It's kind of his thing. Yeah. So even after his death, the FBI was super secretive with all the info they had for years. But since they've never been able to solve anything else or connect him to anything else, they finally just started releasing information to the public. I mean, why not? What else are you going to do? I know. That's what I'm saying. Like, they have all these videos of his interviews and transcripts of them, which they haven't even released all of those. They've only released some. But they also have a whole timeline of his known travels and how many thousands of miles he put on rental cars. They've stated that they believe he's responsible for 11 murders, but that's literally based on the fact that they mentioned 11 murders in one of their interviews and he didn't correct them. And they're like, he didn't lie to us. Yeah, and their thing was like, well, we never really caught him in a lie. Like, he didn't really lie to us. So, like, we feel like he would have corrected us if we had said the wrong number. And It's like, I don't know. Is that just a number they came up with? Well, they came up with it because they said less than 10, and he's like, no, more than that. And they're like, less than a dozen. And he's like, yeah. Oh. But it didn't go exactly like that. That's not how it went. But they came up with 11 because he said less than a dozen. Gotcha. I mean, he's going to say whatever he wants. That doesn't mean that's true. Based on his travel records, it could be a fuck ton more than 11. Yeah, no, absolutely. It could be. And I'm, I would suspect that it is. Yeah. But also there's those blood drawings of the skulls and there's 11 skulls. So. Oh, well, I mean, between the killing and the arson and the robbery, I mean, maybe he did only kill 11 people because he was doing tons of other nefarious things. Instead. Yeah, maybe. And he did tell them at some point in their interviews that he felt like more of a bank robber than a serial killer. Oh, interesting. Which to me is like, does that mean that you robbed more banks than you did kill? Like, I don't, I'm not sure yeah, I don't what know. that means. But so for the last decade since he killed himself, there's just a shitload of people that have spent every free moment researching missing people and checking his timeline and his vague confessions and trying to match victims with his awkward interviews. But I mean, he's done so much. It does beg the question when you can't figure it out. It could have been Israel Keys, especially during that time. Totally. There's been books and documentaries made about him, countless podcasts, YouTube videos. So he ended up getting that max publicity thing that he was talking about, whether he wanted it or not. Well, yeah. I mean, because of the of how he did everything, it's so yeah, so scary how he did it. Like it, it's a story that needs to be told because somebody else like him could be out there. Yeah, but I feel like is that by design? Like, did he do this because he didn't kill that many people, but he wanted to make it seem like he did? We will never know. We won't know. And when they asked him, by the way, about who his favorite serial killer was, he said, "Well, my favorite ones haven't been caught." <laughs> 
Wow. He's like, all the ones you guys know about have been caught. Dude, that is a, a bold thing to say, cocky thing to say. Yeah, I was like, oh. I read two books on this case. One was called American Predator and one was called The Devil in the Darkness. And they're both extremely graphic. So if you're interested in learning more about this case, those are two good books. I very well may because I am interested in this. This guy is this guy is nuts. He's off the rails, man. Yeah. yeah I might definitely... Also, if you're interested in more of a deep dive on him, possible victims and where caches might be and, you know, stuff like that. There's a podcast called True Crime Bullshit. That's a pretty good rabbit hole. <laughs> They've had like three seasons of possible keys victims. They're pretty popular, too. So, yeah, that's a good one to listen to. Yeah. Josh Hallmark, he even covers the name is 44 in that podcast which are like it's like a little spin-off thing that he does about the 44 like he does an episode on each person that was searched on Israel's computer the name is 44 that were searched yeah so which they don't believe are all Israel keys victims like some of them have been proven to be other people's victims he was obviously interested in searching true crime and we're glad that he did so we finally did it we did it Israel keys Grant's been bugging me to do this one yeah and I think that this was a good way years. to do uh Episode 100 was to take it out with uh, this guy. This guy is probably the most interesting serial killer there is, at least in my opinion. Like, I think him and his case is, it's disturbing, it's crazy, but it's interesting. And Yep, but he's literally like the first person, whenever there's a missing person, it's always like, all right, where was his real keys? Oh, always. He has to be. Always check the timeline, guys. So, all right, I didn't look up what the fucking international day was. God damn it. One week we did it good. (laughs) It's our thing now. Damn it. That's all right. We'll get the next one. All right. Love you. Love you too. Bye. This podcast has been a production of Orange Halo Media LLC, hosted by Grant and Erica. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. To chat with us, go to From Crime to Crime on Instagram, From Crime to Crime on TikTok, From Crime the Number Two Crime on Twitter, or you can visit our website at FromCrime2Crime.com. See you next Wednesday.